Our topic for tonight is windows to Israeli society through literature, connections to the land. There, there are going to be some handouts, so be patient. They will come to you. I'm not going to tell you the topic description because we'll get into that, but I would like to introduce our speaker. So here's... Uh, uh, you, want, you, want, you like Rachel, Rachel? Rachel. I can do that without spitting, so I'm very... I went to Jewish day school, so I learned something. Um, I got a call about four months ago from my mother at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, which is very unusual because my mother never calls me, rarely calls me, never calls me on a, on a Sunday morning at 8 a.m. And she said, I just heard the best speaker ever, Rachel Lior, Temple Emanuel. You were the Samuel Cheel um, Kala scholar. You have to get her. I don't care what you do, you have to get her. So if my mother says I have to get a scholar, I listen, because that's very rare. It's never happened before. Three months later, here is Rachel Korazim in your living room. Um, Rachel um, has vast experience in Jewish education, both in Israel. It says a diaspora. Can we use a different word for that? Yeah, of course. The world Jewish community. The world, yes. Does anybody live in the diaspora anymore? No. Right. That's on your website. We've got to fix that. Okay. And the world Jewish galut. That's even better. Yes. Both in Israel and in exile, and teaches Holocaust-related topics as well as Israel, uh, world Jewish community relations, um, and current Israeli literature. She was born in Israel, served in the IDF, so don't mess with her, because she was an officer, and uh, was later a member of the IDF delegation to uh, West Africa. She's a graduate of Haifa University with a PhD in Jewish education, and until 2008 was the academic director of distance learning programs at the Jewish Agency for Israel, you know Department of Education. Is? It says it right here, Jaffe, right? Yeah, and yeah. you know what a Jaffe is. It's nice. I do? Okay. okay. Well, we'll learn more about that. With that, thank you all for coming. And Seth, thank you for hosting dinner. And uh, next time we'll start dinner at 2 p.m. And we'll be fine. Okay, anyway, thank you very much. And I hope you enjoy the program. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction, for an amazing home, unbelievable dinner, and all the rest. There is one item that, for some odd reason, one is not supposed to put on one's bios. Although, looking at the audience, and I know with American one is not supposed to make age comments, yet I'm not blind. So here, so here is the additional bit of my bio. I'm a grandmother of seven. Wow. You know, they never ask you to say that in the bio. Isn't that the most important thing yes. about you? Yes. Come on, all right. What are we proposing to do tonight? It was promised that you will give us a hand with this. I'd like you to try and get copies to everybody, and it's okay to share. And while the copies are going through, I'll tell you a quick story. In the 80s, in the 80s, I was a shlicha, an emissary for the Jewish Agency for Israel in Montreal, Canada. This is the 80s. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, ancient history for others. Yesterday for some, okay? So we don't have internet, we barely have fax, a phone call home, you'd need to take a mortgage out to, to have one, okay? So, and I was missing the direct contact with everyday life in Israel, and most of all, the fact that I didn't know what new books appeared, etc. So, I got my friends to, in Israel, in Haifa, to buy me copies of the new books and literally mail them, like real mail, you know, the one in the package and, this, and that one, okay. So I get the books and soon enough, word gets around in Montreal, she's got the new books from Israel. 
So they asked me, Rachel, will you do some sort of a reading club or whatever in the afternoon? So I said, yes, and we'll, so we do lunch and learn in the Federation building. And next thing I know, my non-Hebrew speaker buddies and friends said, will you do one for us? I said, I'd love to, but the stuff is in Ivrit. It's in Hebrew. How can we do it? So we started making homemade translations, and then we were looking for translations. And sooner or later, it developed into a passion because... It offers you, if you will, a sort of an invitation into the intimate Israeli discourse. The one that we talk about when you are not around. <laughs> you know? Because when Israel is spoken about here in the world Jewish community, not diaspora, there are few venues. There is Israel of the synagogue, and there's Israel of the media, and there's Israel of fundraising. You know all those Israels, right? But this is now an invitation through the window or whatever, the door, to come and listen to us as we talk to each other. Some of these translations that we are going to use are kosher, 100% authorized by professional translators, sometimes in the lifetime of the writer, him or herself, and therefore critiqued by them, and some are homemade. All the homemades were made by a woman called Shulamit Berman, who used to be my assistant when I worked at the Jewish agency, never put her name to the translations because she was not an official translator, so I will always take an opportunity to mention her by name when I do that. When I organized these sessions as they developed, I have about 20 of them by now, I organized them thematically. And I'm, so, I'm, I'm a Sabra. I was born in that country way before the state, so you know you have an inkling of how old I am with the seven grandchildren. And so I organized them thematically along themes. And being the Sabra that I am and a little bit of chutzpah, I like to challenge some well-accepted Israeli notions. So connections to the land, which is the topic, the theme of our session tonight, challenges the following. If you grow up in the Jewish day school system or in the Israeli education system, like the well-protected Jewish environment, there is this story, I'm sure you heard it, that for 2,000 years we prayed and longed and wanted to go back. You heard that story? And then when the opportunity was given, we all rushed back there. And upon arrival, we fell on the ground, kissed the sand, and remained in love ever since, right? Never regretting, never... No, you, you didn't hear the story? I heard the story, but the, the Bratzler Rebbe came to Israel, kissed the land, and took the boat back. Okay, so one Bratzlava Rebbe boat back, all the others totally in love. I tend to want to challenge this. So, okay, so we are, and we are challenging it from Finhaus House, like from the home, from inside. We are not going to ask the neighbors what their opinion is. We are asking, uh, we are looking to Israeli voices who tell you easy on that one, okay? Wasn't as simple as that. We'll start with Yuda Amichai. I will never assume any previous knowledge, so if you know all about Yuda Amichai, excuse me, I'm talking to the one person who doesn't know, okay? <laughs> Yuda Amichai was a very, very important, strong Israeli poetic voice, started publishing towards the end of the War of Independence, which means 48, 49, 
His last publication, still in his lifetime, Open, Shut, Open, is 95 or 96. He died in the year 2000, okay? Sometimes around the 80s, there was a collection, an anthology made out of his poetry called Poem of Jerusalem, and we are taking one out of that. Uh, I don't know, Ari, if you did the Ivrit and the English or just the English. Okay, Bisedo. So we are looking at this one from the Songs of Zion the Beautiful. And this particular one, I'd like to quote to you how many Hebrew speakers in the room? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. And how many patient people for one moment? Until the, I quote the Hebrew, but for just one of them, I'd like the Hebrew to resonate in the room. Yerushalayim, מקום שהכל זוכרים ששכחו בו משהו, אך אינם זוכרים מה שכחו. ולצורך זכירה זו אני חובש על פניי את פני אבי. זוהי עירי שבה מתמלאים כלי חלומותיי כמו מכלי חמצן של צוללים לצלול. הקדושה בה הופכת לפעמים לאהבה. והשאלות שנשארו בערים האלה נשארו כתמיד, ראית את הצאן שלי, ראית את הרועש שלי, there are two lines missing, something happened in the mail, ודלת ביתי פתוחה כמו קבר שמתוכו קמו לתחייה, I'll tell you the missing lines in English as well, okay? The title of the poem in Hebrew is, and now I'd like to, to listen especially if you do not speak Ivrit, okay? The title is Hebrew is Mishirei Eretz Tzion Ve'Yerushalayim. I'd like to be able and have the privilege to speak to a person who is ready to have a private conversation with me for a minute. And I'd like that person to be someone who really doesn't have any Ivrit or very little. Any courageous person who is willing to have that conversation. I need to stay by the mic, right? I cannot move from the mic. I, I would have loved to come closer, ma'am. I'm going to ask you to just listen to two, three or four words that I will tell you. And I will ask you a question then, does it ring a bell? I will not ask you to translate what I say. I know what they mean. I don't need you to translate. I want you to listen to the sound and tell me if in case they resonate, they sound familiar, okay? Here are the words. משירי ארץ ציון וירושלים. ארץ ציון וירושלים. Does the sound ring a bell? It does. It, is it familiar to something that you know? Anybody else? ארץ ציון וירושלים? What, what does it sound like? Shall I sing? There is a clear allusion to Hatikva, to the national anthem. Now, please go and look at the English for me. From the songs of Zion the Beautiful, like how does that translate the Hebrew title? Does the translator, Ms. Bloch, who was authorized by Amichai, does she not know Hebrew? She does. Look at the English title now and think American. Why had they chosen this title? From the songs of Zion the Beautiful? America. America. Amichai was a classic on that. He would have loved, and he did love that way of translating. Not the words, the meaning. Okay? So it should resonate and bring the same type of association to an American reader as it would to Israel. It doesn't work for the Australian readership, but it does work in America. 
Look at the first stanza for me. Jerusalem is a place where everyone remembers he's forgotten something but doesn't remember what it is. <laughs> now, you don't need to be neither a scholar nor a chutzpah sabra like myself to get the following meaning. If a Jewish, as a matter of fact, even a Christian, poet puts in one stanza the words Jerusalem, remembering and forgetting, that person is having a dialogue with a slightly more ancient text. Okay? So that's the first intention. Amichai is having a dialogue with a biblical text from Psalms. If I forget thee, or Jerusalem, God forbid, what will happen? My arm, my tongue. You remember that. And now this flippant chutzpah Israeli is going like, Jerusalem is a place I don't know. I'm not so sure, etc. Is Amichai making fun of Psalms? Is he criticizing that ancient connection to the land to which we have committed through King David, if we believe he's the one who wrote Psalms? Or is he doing something else? Who are those people who, when they come to Jerusalem, look around and, and that they sort of know they ought to remember something, but they do not remember what it is anymore? Who is Amichai talking about? Hmm? People who come what? It's about people from the world Jewish community. Everybody tells me that one. No, ma'am. Who is it about? Israelis who take it for granted. The Tel Aviv people. Bingo. I love your reading. Bingo. This has nothing to do with you guys. It's an inner intimate conversation. It's about us. Now, God forbid somebody should be offended by the fact Amichai is making fun of Psalms, it would take something. You will have to know Psalms in order to be offended. Okay, so it takes a certain readership. Now, Amichai recognizes the fact that we may have reached a point in which many of us live in Yerushalayim, go about our business from the supermarket to the workplace, to home, to make love, to whatever, and we are not cognizant anymore of the importance of the place. And we do not get it. We have lost something. And now it's when diaspora comes in. And for the sake of remembering, I wear my father's face over mine. Hang on with that for a minute. First of all, I need to ask a question. And you do not have to respond. Don't even nod. Because if you do, I will know how old you are. How many of you have reached already the point when you like quickly go by the mirror and you glance and it's mom there in the window, in the mirror? Are you there already? All of you? Okay. Yeah, mom, dad, whatever. Okay. Now, Amichai has the feeling that in order to better understand Yerushalayim in which he lives, because Amichai lived in Jerusalem, he needs somehow to connect to his father's face, like his eyes, his nose, his skin, because there was something in Abba's that I do not have, and if I had it, I would know better. What does that say about Israelis? Because Amichai's father comes from Germany. Back in diaspora, back outside of Israel, you had a better understanding 
of what Israel means, that's a heavy duty statement for Israelis to take. Now I need to show you something because you know that guilt is the most efficient tool of Jewish education, so we have to do that. I need to show you what is lost in translation. Just one example, there are a zillion here, but I need to show you one, okay? I wear my father's face over mine. In English, to the best of my knowledge, and my friend Laura, who is here with us, is a teacher of English as well, so she can correct me. In English, you wear your socks, your shoes, your pants, your blouse, your jewelry, and your perfume, and your hat. In Hebrew, bless the language. You gorev your socks, noel, your shoes, lovesh, your this, ode, your jewelry, and chovesh, your hat. We have a particular verb for every single item that we put on our body, go figure. Now, people normally do not put faces over their face, so we do not have a verb for that. So Amichai has to choose from the plethora of verbs about putting stuff on your body, one. And he's choosing the one for covering your head, chovesh. Hebrew tends to have roots for words, normally three letters each, sometimes two, rarely four, the norm, Three. The root for the verb chovesh, cover your head, has three letters, chet bet shin. If you explore the meanings that is possible to create after, out of this root, it would include the following. Covering your head, namely, doing Jewish, right? Have you ever traveled in a bus in Israel where in an area that it wasn't very safe to travel and there was a paramedic on the bus? What do we refer to those people? Chovesh. Lachvosh is to dress a wound, to heal. Same verb. And if, yeah? Lachvosh. To set, to set a wound, to, to cover it, to heal it. And lachvosh also, I'm now going beginning of the 20th century, uh, early Hebrew poetry, Bialik. Lachvosh et safsalei beit hamidrash, to dress the benches of yeshiva, namely to study. And if you went biblical, Jeremiah, chavush bebet ha'asurim, committed. Machbosh, from the army, yeah. Amichai has chosen a verb that says, in order to better, for the sake of the remembering, I need to wear my father's face over mine by, by what? I'm choosing a verb that says, doing Jewish, healing, studying, committing. The English, I wear my father's face over mine. Nice. <laughs> nice. But you lost a whole set of shades and meaning. I need to make you feel guilty a little bit. <laughs> Otherwise, all right. I can go deeper. Panim, face, the facade, the face in English says outside. The word Hebrew for face means inside. Hebrew recognizes that the face is a reflection of the inside. I can go on and on. As soon as you have done the right thing, wear your father's face over you in order to better understand, it's as if a curtain was lifted and you get it. This is the city where my dream containers fill up like divers' oxygen tanks. You know what I need this city for? Now I got it. He doesn't even go the way of Psalms. I need it like air to breathe if I was living in that Tel Aviv place that doesn't have that air. 
okay? I need the city to fill up my dream containers, as if we had such an organ in our body, only in Abichai's head, of course. Now, I know that there are two scuba divers in the room. I am one of them, and during dinner I found the other. Are there any other scuba divers in the room? Thank you. There are three of us and we are all women. Way to go. There is a mistake here. There is a mistake in the poem. What's the mistake? Only a scuba diver can spot it. Oxygen tanks. Scuba divers do not carry oxygen tanks. You cannot breathe oxygen. You die of that. We carry compressed air. So here's a story. It has nothing to do with the poem. But I need to tell you that. Many years ago, working for the Jewish agency, Jaffe, in a place in Jerusalem called Kiryat Moria, we had a professional development day, and the person who organized it, not me, another person, had the absolutely unbelievably smart idea to invite Yuda Amichai to read to us some of his poetry at the end of the day, like talk about professional development. Okay, he read the poem that we will have at the end of our collection today, not this one. I, the smart Alec, has to show off. So after the session, I go up to Mr. Amichai and I say, Mr. Amichai, you know, in that other poem about Yerushalayim, you made a mistake. <laughs> Not oxygen, <laughs> compressed air, avir dechus. He looks at me pitifully and he goes, who cares? <laughs> Actually, he said, who the hell cares? <laughs> who cares? It's so much more beautiful like that. Now, I want, you, I want to invite you into the beauty of the Hebrew. Like divers oxygen tanks, and like divers oxygen tanks in Ivrit. Kmo mechalei chamtsan shel tzolelim litzlol. Divers who dive. Listen to the tzelele sound, which carries in Hebrew, litzlol, go deep. Tzlil, sound, and tzalul, see-through, like in that other song, avirarim, tzalul kayayin, okay? That one. And I wanted him to say compress air. <laughs> How much more stupid you can get than that? Now, there are two lines missing, and if they were here, it sometimes moves when you mail stuff. If, if they were there, and they, we will read them together, uh, is that you will see that this is a sonnet with 14 lines. And once you reach the middle of the sonnet, normally the tone will change. We are not going into sonnets and whatever that was in school. We are not doing that here tonight. But I want you to be aware of the change in tone. Because after having challenged the connection to the land through the debate with sounds, realizing that you need a diaspora connection to better understand through Abba, understanding now the meaning, and then he goes, then goes Amichai. Its holiness sometimes turns into love. Stay with that for me for the moment. There is a clear shift here. I need my hands for that. I'm in Israeli. There is a clear shift here from holiness to love. I remember myself preparing this, this particular poem for teaching the first time. 
and you are at the awkward situation when you know something but you do not know enough, okay? I knew that Amichai had not invented the shift from holiness into love. I knew it was somewhere in text, classic. But I didn't know enough to know what. So I called a friend, you know, an observant person. I said, Doobie, I'm doing this Amichai, and I have one calling me, you are the Amichai expert. He said, yeah, but listen up. There is a shift from holiness to love, from Kedusha to Ahava. Where does that come from? So the blessing of the priest, everybody knows that. You know, I know as well. Let me take you to the blessing of the street. You do not have to be synagogue go goers. Trust me and go once to see. Blessing of the priests. It happens in synagogue, Shabbat, holiday. Now I'm going to be as literal as I can. They are calling on the bima. Dr. Katz, the pediatrician. Mr. Kahana, the accountant. Mr. Kaplan, the banker. And who else? Kagan. I forgot Kagan. Okay? You know all of them, right? They are there covered with their talitot, talisim, as you say. And it may even happen that you do not like any of them. It can happen, or one. It doesn't matter. And now they utter the following. Blessed are thou, Lord of the universe, Baruch Tadonai, shekidshanu begdushato shelaron, who blessed us, was the blessing of Aaron. Now let's, that's a heavy duty. You stand on the beam and you know that because of the history of Jews to keep family names, you Katz, Kagan, Kahana, Kaplan know for a fact that you are a descendant from the priestly families of the temple. You know, talk about Yichus. And you give thanks for that. Thank you. That holiness turns into yeah, that holiness we were given from above, Todaraba, thank you, blessed be you. And now the end of the blessing. And because we have that, and now we are commanded to bless this congregation with love. Holiness comes from above. Love, you have to give. It's individual, it's human. So classic text recognizes the fact that holiness and love have something to do with each other, but they are not one and the same. And Amichai goes straight in between. I know this city is holy. Thank you. I remember Psalms, Abba helped everything. But to love everything that happens here, sometimes, and by virtue of that, sometimes it's not really great what I see here. It's holiness sometimes turns into love. Talk about s soft, subtle chutzpah. Like, who are you, Amichai? I normally stop here because I'd like to show you some other texts. And if and when I come back, we will do the full Amichai sonnet all the way to the, land, to the end. I'm doing this because I need this as license for what we are going to do if we are doing to do the whole series. Is to take the permission to look at the holiest about Israel and challenge it. Recognize where it comes from and say, but the city, holy. But what I saw happen yesterday on that border crossing, I do not like. 
and it's okay. And it's allowed, and it's kosher, and it doesn't mean betrayal. It means the deepest level of love and commitment. You will give love when you are totally in sync with the holiness. When you see something that is disrupted there, sometimes, hold on, not everything. So remember where we started from? Amichai is now saying, yes, we are committed to this place. It's not about betrayal. But our commitment holds and encompasses the right to critique. This is our starting point. Let's continue. Ah, uh, we are going to skip the shalev. <coughs> and we go to all my land. <coughs> Can I ask for a little bit of water? Thank you. I'm taking you back in time now. We will be going back and forth in time, okay? I'm going to take you back in time, and the year is 1921. It's after World War I, it's way before two. It's after the second Aliyah and into the third wave of Zionist immigration. Thank you so much. And we are along the shores of the Canaries. We can already be in Tel Aviv which was created in 1909. We'll challenge that as well, created much earlier. But we do not count Sfaradim who moved out of Jaffa, right? We count Ashkenazim who came in the second Aliyah, so therefore Tel Aviv was created in 1909. Although we now all, when you go there, you go to the new Tachana station that was created in 1819 something, a good 15 years before Tel and it's Tel Aviv. Why is it not part of the story? Okay, so we are going to, to this part. And the port we are looking at is Rachel. The woman had a last name, but she did, Blufstein. But we never mention it because she acquired a sort of an importance that she is only referred to by her first name. The only comparison that comes to mind is sacrilegious, but I will use it, like Madonna, okay? She doesn't need the last name. <laughs> yeah, like she doesn't need the last name, Rachel made Aliyah to Israel twice, second Aliyah, and therefore the creators of the first kibbutz, Kvutzat Kineret, was sent to study agronomy in France by her kibbutz buddies, got caught in World War I, could not come back. The first boat that she could come back with, 1917, is the Ruslan. The Ruslan officially is the first boat of the third Aliyah. So Rachel made Aliyah twice, second and third Aliyah. Rachel poetry is school readers' material. This is like the bread and butter of raising kids in Israel. And one of the most famous ones is called To My Country. We taught it yesterday at Milken Middle School. And it's about how, you love, how she loves Israel, and how she had not done enough, and how she just planted one tree and just paved with, paved with her feet one short little way to go from the kibbutz to the seashore. Nothing beyond that. And such love, it's in every school reader. It was set to music. It will be sung by almost every famous female Israeli singer. Oh My Land, written in the same year, is in no school reader and was set to music much, much, much later, and we do not know the music. You could sing 
to my country, and I, I, I re yeah, and I dare you, and I, I'd love to see if anybody knows the music for that because it's not famous at all. What? Yeah, but that's not one. I want this one. For this, you don't know the la 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 is great. Thank you. Now, my question to you is: When we we are finished with this, what is so problematic with this poem? that it is not included, I'm going to use a rude language, in the party line. Why was it not set to music? Why is it hidden away from school children in Israel? The same poet, the same year, 1921, both poems. We are going to read O oh My Land, Ho Artsi in Hebrew. Oh, my land, my parent, why is your landscape so blighted and gloomy? The memory of a stepmother land imperceptibly creeps into the heart. What's going on? What's going on? What? She's not happy. And, and what is she missing? What country? Where is Rachel from? Russia, Rostov, pogrom, Russia. A, a, a pioneer of the second and the third Aliyah is missing Gola? Something must be wrong here. What happened? I mean, this is the woman of total love to Israel. And look at the language, mother and stepmother. Okay? And now let's see what she is missing. Upon the hillside, the sprightly fir trees, on the plain, the ancient oak, on the slopes, on the shores of the stream, the birch maidens in their Shabbat garb. What is she missing exactly? Trees, shade, trees. Now look at another thing. If you know the story of the second and the third Aliyah, the first aliyah is an aliyah of families. They would, they would go and settle the Moshevot, and they, the first thing they built was not a kibbutz, but a synagogue in Roshpina and Metula or whatever. Very traditional aliyah. Not pioneers, rara. Second and third is mainly one generational. Young people, not exclusively, but mainly. Young people breaking away from home, not only wanting to settle in the land of Israel, but to create what we call the new Jew, a Yehudi Achadash. So not only does she miss trees, Look at the metaphors. Sprightly fair shuvavei oranim. Ancient oak maidens. She misses the multi-generational family. Young sisters, brothers, grandfather. Trees and family somehow are the things that her heart yearns to. And now let's look at the following. The arm of the sun is too short to cast its fiery lance into the heart of the forest. How, how dense is the forest in Russia? Such that the sunshine cannot penetrate through the trees. A whole day in the abode of the pines, scented darkness and a dream. Oh, does she miss home? And it's not kosher to express that during the second Aliyah. You're not supposed to miss Pogrom Russia. And now look at the culminating line. It's heartbreaking. Oh, my mother. We are back to mother from the stepmother. 
Surely we yearn for you. Surely we will claim your abuse from God. And as in former times, you will again spread fragrance and shade over those stricken by your noontime heat. If all goes well, and work will bring its results, and the prayers will be answered, what will Israel look like? Halevai. Hallelujah. <laughs> will you put that in a school reader in Kibbutz Ganya? Will you set this to music to play on the Israeli radio? It will take many years, many, many years, until we are mature enough, like Amichai, to say, you know, missing homeland, it's not such a terrible crime. You can live with that. It's fine. Israel wasn't that great. At the time Rachel came, it was abused by God. There was no shade. It was terribly hot. It was hard work. It's okay to miss family and home and shade and forest. And we go to the deepest, hardest part of our session today, exile. Water for that? That's a complex one. And no matter how many times I taught it, I sometimes choke over certain lines. It's, it's heartbreaking. I'm preparing you. But I need to take you on a trip. I need you to look at the name of the port, Balfour Hakak. I'm going to give you some information and then I'm gonna ask you a question. Hakak is a classical, traditional, Iraqi Jewish family name. Comes, comes from the root of Lachkok, judge, Kadi, lawgiver. Okay, lawmaker, lawgiver, judge as dignified Jewish a name as you could dream of. How does Balfour compare to that? <laughs> Not exactly from the same root? No. I know that. What would make a good Iraqi Jew in the year 1946 in Baghdad he is fortunate enough to have had two sons to name one of them Balfour and the other Herzl. Herzl! They are in Baghdad, they are Jews, they are called Chakak, twin boys are born, Balfour, Herzl. Like, give me a break. Like, what is this man saying about himself, let alone the kids? What is this man saying about the, the, the Chakak brother's father? He's a Zionist. It's as clear as daylight. Balfour, who gave us the declaration, Herzl, who dreamt it all up, this is what my sons will be called. The family comes to the land of Israel, to the state of Israel, in the early 50s, with the huge immigration wave from Iraq. They are treated like Sephardi immigrants were treated at the time. Children will grow up. They are my generation. I was born the same year, only in Israel. <coughs> By the 80s, they will both find their poetic voice. And Balfour is writing the poem called Exile, Galut in Ivrit. My grandfather's priestly garments were transparent, 
His mother embroidered the hem of his blue robe with beautiful gold bands. She took pleasure etching his name in letter of silver, pure light. My grandfather, Morad ben Rafael Chakak. I may be called Balfour. Grandpa, he was Morad, son of Rafael Chakak. We are who we are from the Jewish community of Babylon, Yehudei Bavel. They don't even call themselves Iraqi Jews. Yehudei Bavel from Babylon. Like Abraham from Ur, my grandfather came up as in made Aliyah. Allo Allah. Now hang on for a minute. We need to stop here. What book did my grandfather have to read in order to make him a Zionist and make him come to Israel? Altneuland? No, not, that's not the book. Which book did he read? Torah. Torah. Yeah. I, the Zionism in my family, excuse me, Abba, doesn't come from Balfour and from Herzl. We come from Bereshit, from the book of Genesis. Grandpa never heard about Altneuland. Did he need Altneuland? His Zionism has roots way deeper than these funny names that you gave us. Okay? from that same land in the same manner. By the way, the Hebrew, like the same words, the same place. And the word makom, place, carries in Hebrew also echoes of God. He came to the same homeland. No longer did he have his gorgeous robe. His supremacy was gone. His face shone with grief. The silver was tarnished and the gold butchered. My grandfather was a peddler in the markets, selling his treasures, tattered clothing, second-rate merchandise, slow of speech, a forsaken prophet. We started with Abraham, and we are working slowly our ways all the way to Moses. Slow of speech, kvadibor, forsaken forest. My grandfather was so versed in text. When he came to the land, what happened to him? He was put down, he was put aside, he lost dignity, he lost his, his, his beauty, his glamour, maybe his faith. My grandfather was a sorrowful king. He was born to silken garments, rich embroidery, and fine raiment. But when he was exiled to the land, oy, kasher gala el eretz, Israel becomes exile. Baghdad was home. Now, if we, majority in this room, Ashkenazi Jews, can somehow maybe forgive longing for Russia? Can we even get the idea of longing for an Arab country? No way it penetrates our mind. That's impossible. And we will need Eli Amir and Sami Michael in later years to tell us how amazing Baghdad was and how homesick you can be to Casablanca and so on and so forth. But when... when Balfour Chakak's grandfather is experiencing this, nobody would dare say aloud that Israel is Gola, 
Israel is exile, and Baghdad is homeland. His clothes were spoiled, his splendor wound. When he died, they draped him in his shroud like a splendid robe. The talit he received from his father, his inheritance, was etched with the blue letters of holiness. Along the whole length of the talit, I thought I could see Dimitilirot, beautiful bands of gold, pure light. My grandfather, Morad Berefael Hakak. What was the only hope of salvation for Saba's generation? Death. Death. By the time I started teaching this poem, Balfour Chakak was the chairman of the Israeli Association of Poets and Writers. He was as mainstream as you could get, but not at the time that this was lived, not even at the time it was written. Okay? It took many, many years for the Sephardi voice, for the Mizrahi voice, to become accepted as mainstream in Israel. The Chakaks were some of the pioneers, not alone. I mentioned a few, and we will do some more as we go. For the following one, I'm going to have to pull out some further introductory information about myself. I come from parents who are Holocaust survivors who survived the Holocaust in Hungary, being sent away, come back, etc. When my parents made Aliyah in 1946 and clandestine immigrants, I was born in the same year, they came pregnant with me. Only at the time, only women were pregnant. Now couples are pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> the kibbutz they were sent to is Kvutzat Geva. Yeah, I'm from there. It's, that's Yichus. That's like, you know, you have to, it brings glory to your name if you tell people that you were born in Geva. And if you cannot appreciate that, it says something about you. Anyway, uh, Geva was created by pioneers of the third Aliyah. Out and out socialist Lithuanians that we call Litvaks, okay? Mom is middle class modern Orthodox Budapest, go figure. And here she comes, the refugee who wasn't smart enough to come before the war like they did, okay? And the expectation is that as soon as the baby will be born rochale to be known in the kibbutz, she will be taught nothing but Hebrew. But I had a grandma, survivor of one of the worst camps, and nobody would expect her to learn Hebrew. And mom would not have a situation by which her child will not be able to speak to her mother. And therefore, in Geva of 1946-47 and 8, they taught me Hungarian. You couldn't be more chutzpahdik than that. <laughs> the only one thing to do one up on this is that grandma would sneak to the baby's home and the children's home and will say mode ani and shma with me every morning and night in socialist Geva. Like, I come from these women who did not care. I mean, they loved the kibbutz, it was okay, but Shema has to be said, and Hungarian had to be taught. 
So I speak Hungarian, and honoring the heritage of where I come from, we are going to read a piece of Ephraim Kishon. The only thing is, <laughs> the only thing is that in my family, nobody spoke of Ephraim Kishon as Ephraim Kishon. He was Kishon Ferenc. <laughs> Any Hungarian speaking, Sir General? Kishon Ferenc. That's the proper way. So I'm going to do a little bit of imitation of Hungarian accent for that. This comes from Kishon's first and only book not written in Hebrew. He wrote it in Hungarian. It was translated by Avigdor Hameiri. Its name in Hungarian was Igen Migen, which was the way the Hungarians were made fun of by other Israelis, imitating. The word Igen means yes in, he, in Hungarian. Migen means nothing. It's just making fun of them. That's Yiddish already, and we don't do that. Only you guys do that. <laughs> Litvaks and Polacks do that. We Hungarians, we don't. This is what they said about us, but we don't participate in that. That's your shtick. Okay. <laughs> Avigdor Hameiri's translation, sorry, excuse me, I cannot even make you feel guilty. But for the sake of the Hebrew speakers, I need to tell you the name in Hebrew. It's a play on words that does not stand translation. It's, I know, it's funny, because it plays on the world of going up, coming down in a very funny way. All right. Attila, Chaim, Chardash, formerly Cohen, an illegal immigrant from Hungary, was in the gymnasium of the Jewish Community Center in Bratislava, Pressburg, in the language of the Talmud. Now, guys, this is a whole chapter here about the history of changes of names, especially in Hungary, not only in Hungary. You meet an Hungarian origin Jew in Israel. He is called Livni, which comes from Levan, white. Hang on, there is a step in the middle. What was your name in Hungary, sir? Fehir, which means white in Hungarian. It's when Jews do not want to have Jewish names, so they have Hungarian. Yeah, but before that, Weiss, of course, white in Yiddish or in German. So Kishon is going into the heart of that, and he says, my man, Attila, I mean, come on, what Jew will be called Attila? There are Hungarians called Attila. So in, in parentheses, Chaim, you know, relax, it's Chaim. Chardash, come on. What true Jew is called Chardash? It's the name of a dance in Hungary. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a folk dance. No, 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 Kohen, <laughs> Kohen. An illegal immigrant from Hungary was in the gymnasium of the Jewish community center in Bratislava, called in Hungarian, Pozsony, okay? And, and in, in German, Pressburg, okay? In the language of the Talmud, that's German, okay? On the second rung of the wall ladder, so great was his fear that he hugged his wife Shari, born Pearl, to her greatest astonishment. A couple of policemen passed by the entrance to the center with clearly anti-Zionist strides. You can see that. God of I illegal immigrants, panted Chardash, formerly Cohen, quietly. May the Slovak tormentors of illegal immigrants not find me. Jews of the world, save me. I don't care if I get to the holy land of Palestine in a washrobe. At that moment, the Slovak news vendor let out a loud yell in his mother tongue, Chardash Cohen, shook all over. He lowered himself to the level of his partner in escape on the lowest rung and rudely gave up even his washrobe in the holy land. 
Atila Chaim Chardash Cohen sat in the bus, holding on with his fingernails to the shoulder of his wife's coat. The vehicle bounded along, bumping violently through the pitch black night on a hardly discernible Austrian track towards the border. If I make it safely to Salzburg, Attila Cohen whispered softly, it will be with the help of God. Blessed be the Jews of Palestine and its merciful government from this day on. I forswear all my pleasures of this world. If I reach our motherland, I swear that is what he said, motherland, hamoledit. Even if I'm barely alive, I will donate 10,000 shillings for the restoration of the Western world, and I will also contribute. Wait, his wife interrupted him as usual. I think we already crossed the border. Never mind, said Chaim Chardash. I'm going to keep my vow. 100 shillings will not ruin me. <laughs> Chardash, or Cohen for short, sat in the railway carriage, making himself as small as possible. His passport had erroneously been marked instead of Dr. Moshe, whatever, you read this. The phony names on illegal documents. Suffered with the name Gisela Zweig. In case you're not aware of the fact Gisela is the name of a woman. <laughs> Budapest. He was drenched in fear lest the Italian customs officers return him to the Rothschild Hospital in Vienna, actually the place he had escaped from. I think, whispered Chardash Cohen Zweig to his wife, as the train emitted a terrible shriek and came to halt on the Italian border, that if the International Jewish Brotherhood saves me right now, I will introduce the fill-in into the kibbutzim. <laughs> I will save the sands of the Sea of Jerusalem. There is none. And I will divide up all my possessions down to my second last diamond between the Association for War Victims and the needy in the Orthodox kibbutzim in the land. What joy to flee naked and penniless for the sake of the Holy Land. Hallelujah. Attila Gisela Chardash, bent down under the blue skies of the land. One by one, he yanked the nails out of his largest lift container in today's language, lift language of the 50s, until finally he peeled off the top. Then he mopped his streaming forehead in the Tel Aviv heat and dived into the contents of the chest. He searched and scrabbled and scratched around for a while and suddenly stopped. He clutched his head, a vein stood out on his temple. Shari, he bellowed. You remember that I put a green nail brush in the door of the bathroom stool? That's the Jewish agency for you. My green nail brush had vanished. Thieves. Grave robbers, it was almost new. This is redemption, Geula. This is the state of Israel. Come on, Ben-Gurion, come here and look me in the eye. I know it's fun, this piece, but I'm going to make your life difficult with it. Who is Kishon talking about? Who are these people, the Chardash Kohen Attila Gizela people? Who are they? Come on, call them by their name. What is this group called? Jews, and at this particular period in history, they are called Holocaust survivors. 
They are called Holocaust survivors. They are coming. They are on their way to the land of Israel, going from Budapest to Vienna to Bratislava, Italy. You know <laughs> the way, <laughs> the way. So first of all, here is a Kishon thing, and in those years, he is the only one who allows himself to say Chevre, Holocaust survivors. They are not saints, you know. <laughs> we are human beings. We are one of them. We have shortcomings. It's okay. Treat us like human beings. Treat us like regular human beings. That's one. And now, what type of a person is this Chaim Kohen Attila Chardash Gizela? What do you learn about him in the in this filiton, actually, this short excerpt? What kind of person is he? Is he are, are you very respectful of him? No. no. He is the classic, yeah? He's a subversive and adopts. He adopts any situation and he, he, he preciously protects his property and, 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 he, and, and he complains and he quetches and he promises and he quetches again, you know, whatever. That's one way to look at him. And he's what? Petty. Petty. Yeah. Now, I'd like you to look at it from a different angle. Let's go back. This man who is so afraid of a Slovak newspaper vendor that he sticks himself to the wall. He cannot face an Italian customs officer without clutching to his wife's coat. What happens to him when he arrives to Tel Aviv? Aha! Aha! Straighten up, face the world, Ben-Gurion! <laughs> Nail brush, you know? Tomorrow elections, you want the Mapai thing in the ballot? Nail brush, okay? But also some courage, some straight back. Some citizen with rights, not just fears. <coughs> and here is a toughie. Why did it happen in the 50s to Chaim Chardash Gizela Zweig and it did not happen to Murad bin Rafael Chakak? Same year. Same year. Now, at the time, I think that Kishon was an adult, Chakak was a child at the time. He will write the poem much later. We can only have this dialogue between these two poems now. We couldn't at the time. But I think now not only we can, we have to. We have to read them side by side at the different experiences of Aliyah. And I think it will give us this, this really way of, of entering the, the intimate conversation that I'm hinting about. How are you doing, guys? Can we do one more? Okay, I don't know how long these sessions normally. One more? One more. Whatever I want. <laughs> one more. There is a boss. One more. One of my favorite, Lizzie Doron. Once there was a family. The book was, was published in the year 2000. It is not available in English. And this is a homemade translation by Shulamit Verman. 
Lizzie Doron had published three books since, one before. And the one before will give you a hint into the whole business that we are going to discuss. The one before is called, Why Did You Not Come Before the War? What does it deal with? It's the encounter between the survivors and family members who have been here from before. And they, after losing most of their families back home, came to Israel because there was one cousin. There was the daughter of Aunt Pesia. You remember, she belonged to the Shomer Atzair, and they made Aliyah. And finally, they will find her in this kibbutz on that Mosheva, and they will knock on the door. Ah! Esther's daughter and her daughter. Huh, I wonder, why did you not come before the war? This is the second one. It's very autobiographical. I had the privilege of, of a moderating a panel in which Lizzie Doron participated, and therefore I had the opportunity to interview her before about the autobiographical part and the way of writing. Lizzie Doron did not find her literary voice as long as her mother, the Holocaust survivor, had lived, only afterwards. So this, this is why the second book is more important, because it's uncover, it, 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 it uncovers that. Once there was a family. In the early 50s, a new land came into being in the state of Israel, the land of here. Listen carefully. In the early 50s, a new land came into being. This particular line holds a dialogue with another very famous Hebrew text. What is that other text? The Declaration of Independence. In that the people of Israel came into its own in the land of Israel. Here is where we were created. So now listen to Lizzie Doron again when she is saying Ben-Gurion. Hang on for a minute. While you were busy declaring the state under your nose in the 50s, there was another land created here, the land of here, Khan. It is populated by an extinct people from the land of there, Sham, nameless. Its inhabitants came unwillingly. Don't tell me Zionist idealist stories. They didn't take us into America because we had pneumonia and tuberculosis. We came here unwillingly. We would have loved to stay in Warsaw and, and, and Berlin and Budapest. Their belongings consisted of strange luggage, odd customs, memories, and nightmares. After the annihilation of the land of there, they commanded themselves neither Torah nor Antloinald, themselves, to undertake an act of creation and established a new world. Helena, my mother, lived in the world of here after dying in the Second World War. This is the story of a girl born to a Holocaust survivor who throughout her life knows that the woman who is raising her could have been should have been another person. But that other person died in the land of there. And here, in the land of here, there is somebody else who is my mom. Here she raised me by herself. In the early 90s, after my mother died for the second time, 
Those who still remained in the land of Her came to pray, pay their last respect and to resurrect those who were not. And this land which had been dying for many years came back to life. For seven days, an unknown land existed once again. Seven days like the days of creation, seven days like the days of Shiva. Okay? The land that was for me, both homeland and family, and this is its story. The, the book has seven chapters, one for each day of the Shiva, of the different visitors. One more page and we're done. Friday afternoon, after the funeral, I returned to my mother's house. Nobody had been there for nearly a year. Since my mother went to hospital, the iron gate was locked, there was no light, and the shutters were damaged. The two rooms, hall, entrance room, not hall, hall, the Israeli hall of the 50, very small, windowless entrance room. Kitchen, bathroom, and veranda of the old house were deserted. When I opened the door, a smell of mold greeted me. A box of matches lay by the cabinets in the hallway. Next to it, as always, was the Ner Neshama, the memorial candle for one of mother's departed. I lit the wick and opened the shutter. I'm hesitant about how far to go with this. I'll do it short. When you come back from a funeral, there will be people caring for you taking care to prepare the house for the Shiva. In families of survivors, it's not sure that they are enough. When you prepare a house for a Shiva, you stop on the way to buy a candle, a Yorzeit candle. Not children of survivors. In our home, there were always Yorzeit candles, Nerot Neshama. Who can even count them all, those dead of my mother? But if you know aging Jewish women, maybe mother on her way to hospital, just make sure. Who knows, my daughter, the Sabra, will she know what to do? I better leave one here. You know, you have all those layers in it. Okay. The dark house was filled with blind, blinding light. The candlelight recalled Shabbat evenings of my childhood. Gleaming silver candles take a white tablecloth covered with tiny mounds of frozen drops of wax. A sweet challah in the center of the old table, red kiddush wine, two porcelain dishes for the Hebrew speakers. When you speak about homemade Israeli china, you say charsina. When you say porcelain, you want everybody to know that you have Rosenthal from Europe, <laughs> okay? <laughs> like this is a class statement when you use the word porcelain, okay? Dishes. And seated at the table, only a mother and the child. Listen, I'm a person of the 21st century. It's not politically correct to say, but I will say. In the traditional way of looking at things, a family of mother and one child is not complete. I am the mother of a single mom daughter. I know all that, and still I need to give you the period reference. It's suggestive of not a complete family. My mother filled the rooms of the house. Her voice could be heard. Her brown eyes would shine. The aroma of the soup and cake wafted from the kitchen. I remembered Fridays when she spread her hands before Shabbat candles, moved her lips, closed her eyes and stood silently. That's how she always stood before the candles, not blessing, not praying. I want to invite you into a yet more intimate conversation. Look at Helena. 
She's standing there in front of the Shabbat candles, and you can hear the dialogue. My daughter needs Shabbat, and Shabbat she will have. The challah, the kiddush wine, the soap, the chicken, the works, the porcelain, the candles. The works. You, prayer from me, forget it. You can hear the dialogue, the blessing less Shabbat. We do Shabbat because the kids need Shabbat. I mean, everybody understand that. Prayer, you for, nah, no, 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 there is a limit. Her legs were swollen and heavy and her travails were etched in her many wrinkles. She was prematurely aged. Only the palms of her hands spread over the small flames bore testimony of the beauty that might have been. The palms of her hands were delicate, smooth, and tender with long, slender fingers, the palms of a lady. Only one finger, the little finger, was bent and frozen. Why is your finger that way? I wondered silently when I was young. Aloud, I asked, Mother, where is your little finger? Hiding in the palm of my head, she replied, and I laughed. When I was older, I dared to ask again, Mother, what happened to your little finger? It's a souvenir from over there, she replied, from the time when God went away and departed from the world. She didn't explain further. After that, I stopped asking. This evening, I saw the beautiful palms of my mother's Helena hands, remembered people glances catching the, folder, the folded finger, children's whispers, look, look, the woman without the little finger, and mother telling me proudly, Alone with nine fingers, I built a family here. Ladies and gentlemen, I bet, I hope, many of you had the privilege to hear your fathers and mothers say, alone with ten fingers, I did this and that. Lizzie Doron, as a conclusion to our session tonight, is saying, the people who built this country were not only great-looking kibbutz-born sabras. There were people with missing children and missing souls and yet they are part of our connectedness to this place called the land of Israel. Not perfect, but functioning. Thank you very much.